Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so did a pretty interesting podcast, getting a lot more positive feedback on it than I thought I was initially going to, uh, with a, a podcaster and former evangelical pastor named Clint Haycock. He came, I was on his podcast, and he came on mine, and I suspect that we're going to be doing some more episodes because I have many, many, many questions for him about uh, evangelicals and uh, the abuses and, and cultic activities and behaviors that go on. Uh, in that, in some of those groups. So uh, anyway, we we took that topic on, and I thought we did a, a, a pretty good talk. I think if, if nothing else, uh, you'll find it interesting. Uh, and also, I wanted to uh, say the Critical Clips channel is now putting out videos. I've decided it's Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday, one a day. So seven days a week, I am putting content up on YouTube. Uh, either on my uh, regular main channel here, uh, where you're watching my full Q&A episodes, or uh, clips uh, on the Critical Clips channel. So I encourage you to subscribe to that channel. I would like to grow it so that I can actually make that a source of ad revenue for myself as well. I'm just being completely blunt about that. Uh, but the content, of course, is why you should subscribe. You shouldn't be subscribing because of me. You should be subscribing for the content. And, and it is good content and stuff that I think you'll want to refer people to because uh, the, every clip is an answer to a specific question or a particular single topic that you can always uh, link people up to so they can get the answer on some specific part of Scientology or whatever other topic I'll be posting on. Uh, and I wanted to give another shout out this week to some new Patreon supporters and some uh, increased support that I am very, very thankful for. Janet Matthews, uh, thank you for your uh, pledge. Um, Indy Republican bumped up very generously. Thank you very much for that. Also, Brian Torpy, same. Thank you. And I think I mentioned Jason Smith coming on last week, but uh, in case I didn't, Jason, thank you as well. All right, now, with all that little housekeeping done, let's get on with your questions. Michael Blau, did you find your Scientology training difficult and have just not chosen to mention that? As a Scientologist, I was a mediocre student and auditor, only ever at the public level, so my experience would clearly be different from yours. How was it for you as a student auditor and in supervisor training? It seems to me to be a shame that such rigorous and skilled attention is given to something that turns out to be a worthless scam. That rigor must be a part of what keeps people involved and believing that there is something worthwhile there. Your comments? Good question, Mike. Um, yeah, Scientology training definitely had its ups and downs for me over the years. When I first came on, I think I might have told this story. Um, I've told it to a few people, and I couldn't recall if I had mentioned it in that long podcast that I did on the subject of Scientology training. But I'll, I'll tell you this, because this is one of the ways that I was broken, you know, uh, as in the same way that you break an animal when you're training them, you know. Uh, it, when I, early on, as a, as a, as in fact, I think it was on the first course I did. It was on this uh, professional TRs course, this big hunky communications course. And this wasn't the public level communications course that people talk about. This was the pro one, and it was the first course I did. I dived into it uh, head first, and it was. Uh, the idea was that I was going to get auditor trained, and you had to do these beginning courses first in order to become an auditor. 
this one being all about communication, which is the, the heart and soul of auditing. So, um, so I was doing the theory portion of the course where I was reading uh, Hubbard books and issues and, and listening to lectures. And there came a point on one chapter where I just could not get this opening paragraph. It just did not make any sense. And I was a well-read 15-year-old, I guess. Uh, yeah, I was 15 at the time. And, but I, I'd read you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of books in my life. I was a very avid reader. So it was really weird that this sentence, I just could not put it together in such a way as to make it make any sense. And so the supervisor's pat response was, well, what word there did you not fully understand? You need to clear that up. And I couldn't find it. I, I know these words. I don't, you know, this isn't, and, and this is, see, this was all before I was broken into the Scientology study system, see? So I still had some resistance. I had a little bit of a backbone. I had a little bit of a pushback, right? Uh, this, cause this was, again, the very first course I did, and it was in, up in the big academy where all the big real Scientologists do their training. So I was in there with the big fish, right, swimming in the deep waters, and I was a new guy. So I was, like, not indoctrinated on all of this study technology and misunderstood words and using demo kits and all this other rigmarole, right? So... So I'm pushing back, and the supervisor is not down with this at all. His name was Scott. Nice guy, very funny guy, but, um, but indoctrinated Scientologist, right? So he wasn't going to take any lip from some, you know, green 15-year-old telling him that L. Ron Hubbard didn't make any sense, right? Because that's what I was saying. I was saying, this doesn't make sense. I don't know what the deal is, but I, it, I just don't get it. And... Uh, and so I, was, I wasn't going along with the idea that you should just go find your misunderstood. So he literally removed me from the classroom. I mean, I have a big mouth. I talk loudly, and I guess I was disturbing the other students. So he took me out of the classroom uh, with another student, and we had to sit down in this other private room, and I was protesting the whole time. I'm like, I don't need word clan. It's not a misunderstood word, right? I was like, ah, rah, rah. I was really mouthing off, and he was like, finally, he's like, you know, I'm sitting there, and he's standing over me, and, and the other poor student who has to now find my misunderstood words, he's just sitting there going, oh, God, this is a little tense. I wasn't trying to make it awkward. I was just trying to express myself, and, um, and he was like, you know, he's like, listen, he finally says, that's it, right? Like, that's it. I'm the supervisor, you're the student, I say, you do, start, right? And he just walks out, and we were both looking at each other like, oh, shit, right? Like, okay, I guess I guess I screwed up there, right? So, um, and this was 1985. So, um, anyway, yeah, so just in terms of the, the, the time of the culture, whatever. Anyway, I'm telling this whole story because I want you to get that at the beginning, I was bucking the system. I was not a, a, a compliant person who just came in and was willing to be rolled over. I considered myself a smart person, and I wasn't going to be talked down to by somebody when I was paying for these courses. Uh, but I got broken into that system uh, because, I, you know, resistance is futile. <laughs> and... What ended up happening is then I got used to the, the, the pattern of, 
oh, there's something here I don't get, or I'm, I'm going to have a question about something, I better find what word I don't understand. And it just became this sort of thing that you can convince yourself to do, and you sort things out. And sometimes you go and you look for words you don't understand, and you find them, and, they're, and you're like, wow, that actually helped me understand this better. So it's not like it doesn't work. But it's not always the thing that's impeding your understanding, right? That's the problem, and they always insist it is. So, you know, sometimes it's helpful, but when it's not helpful, it's not helpful. And you, and you just kind of learn as a Scientologist uh, student to gloss over those questions. Well, maybe it'll be clarified later, or maybe I, it's, it's unimportant, right? I don't really need to understand this in order to understand the bigger context of what I'm reading, so I'll just pass it by. Which is pretty much what people do anyway in the real, in the big wide world, right? So it's not like it's that weird. It's just you adopt these ideas and you kind of blind yourself to them so that you can continue thinking that, oh yes, it's always the misunderstood word, Because <laughs> you have to accept the dogma. So as, uh, as the years went on, I became a better and better Scientology student. And, um, and I got very fast, actually. I got really good at, as, a, as a student. And because I got trained as a supervisor and I was supervising other people, I ended up learning so much more Scientology than I would have if I had just taken regular classes going up that, you know, the bridge to total freedom. Uh, I was teaching others all the classes because that's the way the course rooms are run is one supervisor can supervise 20 people and every one of them can be on a different class taking a different course. So you're learning what they're learning, kind of, when they ask you questions at least, and you have to go in and look and see what's, what the deal is. And, and you're not supposed to, according to policy in Scientology, you're not supposed to have to know the subject in order to supervise it. The supervisors only have, only have to know the study tech, right? They don't have to know what you're reading. They just have to know to tell you to go find your misunderstood word if, you, if, you're, if you're manifesting questions about it or confusions. So anyway, I'm kind of going on and on about all the study tech here, um, but, um, but it had a lot to do with how I adjusted myself in learning. Unfortunately, that also, because of the, the constant pressure to speed up and get through classes quickly, because um, that's always a thing. Get the statistics. Get the statistics. And course completions is one of the statistics that they follow. So you're always being rushed through your classes. And that was a negative because that, that was a big negative. Because I didn't retain the data as well because I didn't study it as deeply as I wanted to or could have. Um, and perhaps had I done so, I might have seen more inconsistencies in the material more quickly than, you know, because now I see it very easily. But at the time, I, you know, you're kind of rushing through it. So you're just trying to get the main points and you'll get down into the details later, unless the details are super important for some, spe you know, specific reason. So, so that was kind of the, I got to become a very fast student because I wanted to be a successful student and I wanted to be, you know, get good statistics and that kind of thing. And so I became a more superficial student in many ways. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was kind of a thing because then I ended up having to go back over the materials over and over again um, is what would end up happening because it's, you know, you get, maybe you don't get everything on the first pass especially when you're speeding through it, but you, then you go through the second pass or a third pass. I mean, I did supervisor training like 
I think four different times. Um, I did, you know, go and again, as a supervisor, you go over the materials over and over again. So I think my experience was not necessarily representative of, of every other Scientologist's experience. You know, maybe in looking at this whole story I've been telling here, we see that, you know, I've got a bit of a, a deeper experience with the study than, than a lot of other Scientologists did. So anyway, Mike, I hope that gives some more data on that and is useful, uh, helpful data for you. Andrew Wariner, do you think the reason why Miscavige is not allowing many members to go up the bridge is that he doesn't want to expose them to the absurd Xenu story? Thanks for the question, Andrew. You know, at first I thought, oh yeah, no, of course not. But then actually considering your question a little more, it's not a bad question um, because, you know, the Xenu narrative is out there and anybody can find it. It's, it's, it's almost in your face if you, ha if you Google Scientology at all. So, you know, so odds are a lot of Scientologists are seeing this word and seeing that it has some connection with confidential information, and they can't help but wonder about it. I sure did when I was a Scientologist. My complete attention was wrapped up in what is OT3? What is this ultimate secret that we are going to learn that we could never, ever guess at, could never ever possibly stumble on accidentally in a session. We're not ever going to be able to recall it. So what could this thing be, right? It's like such a mystery. And it's a big one, and it really entices a lot of people to continue going up that bridge looking for that sacred knowledge, that ultimate truth. So, um, so now that it's so freely available out and about, you know, I'll bet a lot of, of current Scientologists have heard of it, way more than, than had in my time when I was around pre-internet days, uh, or, you know, when the internet was still young and fresh and new. <laughs> so, um, so this might not be such a, such a you know, brush-off uh, answer here. I, I mean, Miscavige might very well be taking that into account. And not and see, he wouldn't want people necessarily to get to that level very super fast because then they're going to find out that all the data in the public sector is the data, and people aren't dying as a result of it. Right? The OT three myth or narrative is supposed to set in motion certain mental phenomena that are supposed to make you sort of spin and pull in pneumonia and death, and your body is actually supposed to die as a result of that. So you're, it's not just knowing it, it's, it's, it's that these processes are supposed to start happening. And clearly they don't, and clearly nobody's dying anywhere for this knowledge or for anything like it. So that would tend to poke some holes in some of the very obvious Hubbard tropes that he, that he put out there. Uh, about OT3 and this and this narrative, right? That it's that's very very dangerous, very very confidential, and if you found out about it before you're ready, there would be very untoward consequences. Well, there are no untoward consequences. Anyway, I think you get the point. So, uh, so good question, Andrew. It might just well be a factor. I can't say for sure one way or the other, but certainly would be something he should be thinking about. Jason Smith, if somebody spits out the clear cognition. Aren't they ever suspicious that person has been on the internet or otherwise getting confidential info? Or is it just always considered legit? Will they test or interrogate you, or do they just let you attest to the state of clear if you say the right words? 
As cynical as I am, I might be thinking this guy is a spy or he cheated, went on the internet and just wants to take the quick, easy, and cheap way to clear. Then again, true believers would have to believe you'd get pneumonia if you read confidential material before you are ready. Isn't that right? Did I answer my own question? They figure if you aren't dead or stricken with pneumonia, then surely you came up with cognition on your own, all your motives are pure, and you couldn't have cheated. Thanks for the question, Jason. I'm glad you brought this whole thing up about the pneumonia thing. As I just mentioned in the last question that I answered, you don't, the, the pneumonia thing is specifically connected with OT3, not clear, or any other confidential information in Scientology. It is very specific. So, no, nobody's worried about, you know, clears getting pneumonia and, and dying all of a sudden because they expose themselves to confidential data about clear on the internet, right? If you go exposing yourself to the OT3 stuff, that's where you're supposed to run into trouble. So, no, that's not the reasoning on this. The, the clear cognition is, uh, okay, first off, in Scientology, the word cognition means a sudden realization about something, a, a, a new level of understanding has been reached in some area or sector or part of your life. You go, oh, wow, I didn't know that before kind of thing. That's a cognition. It's something that you didn't know before is the point. So a clear cognition is the specific cognition, the specific aha moment you're supposed to have when you achieve the state of clear. It's not something that you knew before. Uh, so this, so it's supposed to be something that just happens to you. Um, okay, so that all being said, you get, you go in and you get your auditing and at some point along in your auditing, you know, pretty high up and, and it's supposed to be on Dianetics auditing, you will say something like, oh, I've been the one mocking up my own reactive mind right? Or something like this, right? I'm not quoting the exact clear cognition. I didn't even look it up. This is just the concept I have of, of what I remember of it. And it's this idea that you're the one who's creating this, this horrible, you know, stressor called the reactive mind that is, uh, has been impeding your, your existence for all these many years. Uh, and once you have that realization or that cognition, and you say it like that, the auditor and the case supervisor are supposed to recognize, ah, he said these words. Now what happens is they don't march you over to the examiner and have you attest to clear. What happens is you now have to go get a special service called the Clear Certainty Rundown. And that is sold in a five-hour block of audit. And it's supposed to be a fairly short action, and it's supposed to verify and uh, or rehabilitate the state of clear. Because, for example, you could have gone clear in your last lifetime, right? If you were you know, of age, right, where you had a body before, after 1950, uh, then, you know, you could have in your last life gone clear and then died and, you know, kind of got another body and sort of forgot about it for a while. And then Scientology appears in your life and ta-da! Oh, yes, I was clear last lifetime, right? So the clear certainty rundown would also be given there in order to rehabilitate that state of clear. All right, so the Clear Certainty Rundown has, the, as one of its first steps, you get a little sec check, a security check, a confessional, as they call it in Scientology, not like a Catholic confessional, but it's, uh, it, they're going to interrogate you on the e-meter as to whether you've been on the internet, been looking at confidential information, right? They're going to ask direct questions about that to make sure that you are not just faking it. 
Uh, and then they, uh, once that's all, when that process is done and they're satisfied that you haven't been on the internet and that's not where you got the data from, then they will do these other steps to test and, and verify that you actually are clear. And if you're not, you get sent back down for more auditing. And if you are, they go way and you get to go attest to being clear. And now you get a clear bracelet and your life is supposed to be wonderful and you no longer have this awful, horrible, reactive mind. And that's the deal with that. So hope that uh, hope that fully answers the question, Jason. Thanks for asking. D. Is there anyone currently who is David Miscavige's right-hand man in the same way that Miscavige was for LRH? Someone who would take over if and when the demise of DM ever happens? Or is DM too paranoid to have someone so close to him? Do you think if DM was ever arrested that current Scientologists would still consider him the leader as the FLDS do with Warren Jeffs even though he's incarcerated? Would that make DM a martyr like Jeffs and elevate his standing? Thanks for the question, D. I get asked this all the time about the secession of David Miscavige and who would who would rise up into his position. And frankly, no one knows. Nobody has a clue what would happen if David Miscavige just disappeared tomorrow. The circumstances of his disappearance, though, would matter. And that's why the second half of your question was very, very interesting to me and I wanted to talk about it. Um, I don't think right now, from all the knowledge, the data that I have, that there is any right-hand man to David Miscavige. He's got an assistant, uh, Lou, whatever her last name is, I forgot. Uh, used to be Stukenbrock. Anyway, he's got her. Um, he's got other people in his entourage, and he's got whoever else he wants to pull up and pull and put into his entourage, which he does from time to time. Um, so I think he's. I think he looks for lieutenants who will, you know, be subservient and loyal and. And, uh, and, you know, obsequious to him. Uh, but I don't think he's looking for a replacement or I don't think he's looking for a right-hand man who could fill in for him should he, you know, want to take a day off or something. That's not how David Miscavige would think. Um, that would be the exact opposite of how he would be thinking because, of course... Anybody he groomed to put into, you know, a right-hand man position would just kick him out and take over because that's how he did it, right? So uh, he's he knows he's not going to let that happen to him. So I don't think that's why that situation is, uh, I don't think there was any right-hand man. But the question about him going to jail, that's, a, that's interesting because, yes, I do think it would depend on what the charges were. But, um, and, and what available evidence was there for the public to see. But, uh, but actually, regardless of the evidence, it actually wouldn't really matter. There would be a contingent of Scientologists, and certainly the Sea Org as a body would line up to be loyal to him. And they would still want directions and orders from him, and they still would think he is the leader, and they would definitely do a full-blown martyr campaign. Absolutely. And in fact, you would see, oh my God, a level of promotion (laughs) coming out of Scientology, like actual hard money being spent, that no expenses would be spared to promote anything on any media line that David Miscavige is being, you know, lynched, framed. It's It's all a frame up, right, by his enemies. Uh, this was, you know, it's all just, uh, uh, he's totally being martyred right now. He's a religious leader. Of course this is happening. I mean, they would leave no stone unturned and no expense 
uh, spared to get him out of that jail situation. They definitely would. They could have video of him killing somebody and everything I just said would be true, would still happen. I, I guarantee it. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Now, if David Miscavige, of course, the only exception to this little scenario I'm painting here is that if he himself was broken by law enforcement or by his prison experience and he no longer was the one giving the orders or commands or was incapable of doing that for some reason, then somebody would step up and odds are that person would end up becoming the next David Miscavige. And depending on their personality type would depend completely on what the direction of Scientology would be from that point forward. So, uh, so that's an interesting scenario and one that I had not considered before. So thank you very much for asking me that. Jay Moore, what is the point of the harsh conditions for Sea Org members? Is it institutional culture, like it's always been this way, so why change? Is it a cost-saving measure, a control mechanism? Sadism on the parts of LRH and DM, all of those things and more? It seems to me that they would have an easier time recruiting and keeping Sea Org members by making very minor changes. Better food, more time for people in the SO to work their way up the bridge, better health care, a retirement home for elderly members, etc. Sure, it would cost more, but they have the money, and it seems like even a marginal investment to the SO budget would have significant dividends in worker production, retention, etc. Hell, that could even be a new fundraising campaign. Fund the Sea Org Foundation. As it is, it seems like the Sea Org and its conditions are actually creating many of the church's most vocal detractors. Jay, you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a, a mix of all of the things you, you mentioned in your question. Uh, depending on the day, uh, depending on you know, what mood David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard were in, they are both pretty you know, bipolar-type personalities. And uh, what, you know, even Miscavige, one day he's your best friend, the next day he's putting you, you know, making you lick the floor. Uh, so you know, it's pretty, pretty wild, crazy kind of situation being close to them in any way. Very dangerous. Um, but in terms of the Sea Org as, as a whole, yes, there is an institutional culture of this military, paramilitary kind of lifestyle. Hubbard's flag orders and issues to the Sea Org only all stress, discipline, and honor, and code, and this kind of thing, and taking all of this very, very seriously. It's a deadly serious activity, and, you know, if win or die in the attempt, right? So uh, there's only one way out, and that's to win. Uh, so all of that discipline and control is, is directed to that. Um, it's also that they consider that being in a harsh environment. Hubbard actually, again, wrote issues about this saying that, you know, people appreciate a harsh, tough environment. It's when things go slack and, and lazy that everybody is, gets, that their morale drops out the bottom and nobody cares about their work anymore and nothing ever gets done. Whereas if you tune in, if you turn the volume way up and it's, you know, it's harsh, it's tough, it's disciplined, then people are more effective. They're stronger and, and more able as a result. So I'm not saying that's true. I think there's certain truths to what I just said, but I think that you can dial that volume up way too high, and that is what happens when you get into a Sea Org environment, as we've described in grim detail, uh, you know, all over the internet. So, um, so there, so there, all of these reasonings go into why the Sea Org's environment is kept the way that it is. More recently, since all of this criticism has been coming out since the mid-2000s about all of this, 
the Sea Org has responded in some ways. The base pay, I think, has gone from fifty to one hundred dollars a week now. Um, the uh, and I just said base pay. I mean the pay because there isn't a, a higher pay. It's just the pay. Um, I don't know about living conditions particularly. I, I'm not sure about the food situation. I can't imagine that it's a whole lot better than it was. But, you know, they might have invested a little bit more in that. Uh, there were times where there would be crew welfare investment. And every time that happened, there was certainly a raise in morale on the part of the crew. So it does, you're right, it does take very little things in order to make the Sea Org way happier. Because uh, when your life sucks as hard as a Sea Org member's does, any little kindness is, uh, is you know, seen as exponentially to uh, how we would see it out in the big wide world. So that's, you know, that's kind of what I can say about all of that. I do think very much so that, um, that that harsh, tough environment is really, in the end, only uh, useful to the, the leadership and that it is, in the end, a control mechanism. You know, I think that really is its overall, if you're really going to step three feet back from it and look at the whole big picture, what's going on here, it's control. And, uh, and I think that's, that's really the bottom line answer on that. Whoa, it's time for Flash Answers. Tina Sofer. Does Scientology restrict photos slash videos from being taken in certain buildings or anywhere else? In other words, if photos are allowed to be taken and a Scientologist quits the organization, is there a contract stating those photos cannot be shared with the public? Uh, normally for public or anything, I would say no. For public Scientologists, I, I don't think that would be the case. They just wouldn't be allowed to take pictures in certain areas. But... Um, uh, but if they leave Scientology, Scientology can't go after them for those pictures. Sea Org members, yes. Uh, before you are allowed to leave the Sea Org, they actually go through your stuff. And if you take anything out that they don't want you taking, they're going to take it away from you. They're not going to let you leave with that stuff. So, um, so you have to be kind of crafty about hiding that stuff if you want to keep it and have any chance of keeping it. So that's kind of how that works. Rick. What do you know about Scientology in the Netherlands and in Amsterdam? Recently, there was a huge opening of a new Scientology building, and I wondered how big Scientology is in the Netherlands. Rick, I don't really know a whole lot of anything about Scientology in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam specifically. Uh, only the, the broad picture of Scientology there, which is that it's tiny. That I do know. I think that I think the uh, census in uh, Denmark was in the hundreds of active Scientologists, not thousands. Um, I don't know about the other countries around that region, but um, that's, that's what I can tell you. Ben Asselstein. A Canadian friend of mine pointed out that they spelled center the British way, or the Canadian way, with an R-E at the end. What's up with that? Did Hubbard always prefer British spelling? Was it ever the Celebrity Center spelled E-R? The person who started Celebrity Center was actually Yvonne Gillum, or Yvonne Gench, uh, it was not uh, L. Ron Hubbard, so I believe the spelling came from her, and she was Australian. Now, that's my, that's my guess. I did not Google or look up whether in Australia they spell it the same way they do in Britain, but I'm kind of assuming they do. Uh, but if they don't, that's the only explanation I have for it, so if I'm wrong, I, I don't know why. <laughs> 
Okay, everybody, thanks for coming around and watching the show. If you appreciate what I'm doing, think that it's uh, informative, educational, and entertaining, then consider supporting me through Patreon. Uh, link in the corner here and also down in the description section. Also, check out my Amazon webpage uh, for any books that I'm recommending you guys read because there are some great ones. And the Critical Merchandise site link also below. All of these are wonderful ways you can help support this channel and keep me uh, going so I can continue answering your questions. Thanks. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.